Welcome to Romans Untangled, a podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 3, Episode 10, All Israel Will Be Saved, Romans 11, 25-32. Hey, in this episode, I'm super pumped about this episode, uh, we're going to really dive into a very controversial verse, probably the most controversial verse in all of Romans chapters 9 to 11. And that's Romans eleven twenty six, which says this, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by this, given everything he's stated so far in the chapters 9 to to 11. Hey, welcome. Glad to have you back here. Welcome to my basement where I do my recording for Romans Untangled. It's really good to be with you all, even though no one's here except for me. <laughs> Once in a while, Dakota, the Wonder Beagle. Our family's getting ready for Christmas. This is this great time of year. Uh, it's really fun for me now, having a couple grandkids and spoiling them rotten which is what I've been waiting all these years to do. Uh, So I I wish you all a very Merry Christmas as well. We've got this episode and one more, which will come out right before Christmas. And uh, we're excited uh, to to celebrate, to celebrate Christmas. It's not only a time off. It's not only a time with family. It's not only a time of mistletoe and parties and all that. It's a time to remember that uh, it's the birthday of the man who came to save our necks according to uh, good old-fashioned Larry Norman there. Hey, we've been doing, in the beginning of this, we've been kind of kicking off, spending a few minutes just looking at a person in church history. This will be our last one for this season. And I've really enjoyed just picking some. And and you might think, well, you didn't pick all the ones I like, and I, I... Perhaps, I don't know, but but we've been looking at some of the big dogs right now of the Reformation. We looked at Martin Luther, and then we looked at his wife, Katie. Uh, then we looked at John Calvin. Last week, we looked at Ulrich Zwingli. And this year, this week, uh, we're going to look at John Knox. John Knox is born in 1514, and he dies in 1572 uh, at the age of uh, 58, I guess that makes him. Now, uh, if you remember, Luther and Zwingli are contemporaries, and John Calvin and John Knox are contemporaries. And so that's a key thing here as you remember kind of where they go. And remember, this is way back. This is, you know, pushing 500 plus years ago, right at the time of the uh, Reformation, uh, as well as the Renaissance was taking place. Europe is rapidly changing at this time. And uh, the Catholic Church is struggling for identity at the same time that these things are happening. Along comes a net man by the name of John Knox. And he is an enigma in a lot of ways. He is a guy who we don't really have categories for this guy. He was a preacher, and we'll get there as we describe some of his life. But uh, he was also a person who, you know, he lived in Scotland during this time. And there's a lot of political uh, strife. There's a lot going on with uh, England and them wanting to be free and all kinds of things taking place. And so John Knox was not opposed to violent revolution. In fact, he, on more than one occasion, uh, was involved either probably indirectly with them, but but he, he did engage himself in violent revolution. He was also probably, as you think of Scottish preachers in the history of Scotland, he's probably the most powerful preacher 
there was, and only two of his sermons remain for us. He's also one of the, the if you're in Scotland, you're, you this is someone that is very famous. Uh, he's really the beginner or the, the starter of Scotch Presbyterianism, which really leaks out and becomes Presbyterianism all over the, the world. And yet there's only one monument in all of Scotland for this man. And in fact, if you want to go and visit his grave, it's beneath a parking lot. So uh, he, he indeed was a guy who, who, who was controversial in his day, was influential, and yet maybe doesn't get some of the credit that he deserves. He's born in 14, 1514, excuse me, in a small town south of Edinburgh named Haddington. About 1529, he enters the University of St. Andrews. He goes on to study theology, and he becomes ordained in 1536. Around this time, there's you know they're part of the the English Empire, and it kind of matters who's sitting on the throne. Uh, at this point in time, there's a Catholic uh, sitting on the throne of England, and so therefore, uh, it makes Protestantism it's being pushed out. Remember, he's born in 1514. That's three years before Martin Luther posts his 95 Thesis, and the Reformation kind of begins. The very beginning phases of the the Reformation. I mean, there were people that led up to it before that, but in 1517, so this kind of takes place. In in the early 1940s, he gets swept up into the all these reformers, all these people who've been converted to Protestantism into faith alone by grace alone, and it sweeps him up as well. And so he begins to... Uh, he begins to follow this movement. He becomes a bodyguard for a preacher uh, who goes around Scotland preaching. Isn't that amazing? How you'd need a bodyguard in those days. And he, um, in 1546, he had uh, the person he was being a bodyguard for was arrested, and then he was tried, and then strangled and burned. And in a response to that, 16 Protestants storm the castle and they assassinate this leader who had that done. So Scotland is a violent place and John Knox, although he wasn't directly involved in that, he did approve of it. And he improved, uh, he approved of many more violence, many more violent things to take, to take over some of the injustices he saw. To kind of pass, uh, go back and forth, he ends up having to move back and forth from Scotland to other places. At one point, he has to flee to France because Mary Tudor takes the throne and she's a Catholic and she's putting pressure on the Protestants in both England and Scotland and Ireland everywhere. And so John Knox has to flee to France. While he's there, he meets John Calvin. They're roughly... Uh, the same age. If you remember, John Calvin is born in 1509. So he's only about five years older than, than uh, John Knox. And, and they, they, become, they become friends. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he calls, uh, John Knox calls Geneva the most perfect school of Christ that was ever on earth since the days of the apostles. So when he finally is able to go back to Scotland, he is now uh, preaching up a storm. And while he's there, um, he is engaged in many things that kind of get him in trouble. He starts uh, doing tracks 
Uh, that means little little booklets that get printed easily, and he and they're really against the government and against the queen and against all of these different things. So he has a a relationship with the state because he saw so much injustice happening and so much oppression happening that he uh, comes out and says this a very famous quote that said the sword the sword of justice is God's, and if princes and rulers fail to use it. Others may. <laughs> so he says, hey, if you're not going to use that, uh, uh, we are. So so what happens is this group forms in Scotland, and they're called the Lords of the Congregation. They, they rise up, and they are now trying to make Protestantism uh, the religion in Scotland. And eventually, it actually happens. And in 1516, the Treaty of Berwick, uh, the English and the French agree to leave Scotland. Uh, even even then, uh, Mary Tudor is no longer on the throne, but Elizabeth I, and she's a Protestant. And so that uh, kind of seals that deal. He then gets he gets um, he gets now permission from the new government, which is Protestant to write a confession of faith, the first book of discipline, and the book of common order, which really take the Protestant faith in Scotland and really set it forward. He's the one who's a great man of courage, a great man of faith, obviously had his faults as well, like we all do, but now um, there there are millions of Presbyterians worldwide. There are 750,000 Presbyterians in Scotland today that can trace their lineage back to John Knox. So that's one of the one of the four, I'd say the four or five, if you include Katie Luther, I kind of do Martin and Katie together as one. Big, big influences of the Reformation. Okay, let's get into Romans this week. We have a fantastic passage. We are uh, we have only two episodes left. We're going to finish up with really the end of the theological portion of Paul's statements in Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9, what he's dealing with in the very beginning, just to refresh your memory, is as Paul is in churches and as everyone are, uh, as Christianity is starting to spread, people are noticing, where are all the Jews? I mean, this is mostly Gentiles in here. Now, if you had gone into a synagogue in those days uh, before Christ, it would have been a lot of Jewish people and a few Gentiles. But all of a sudden, the churches start to come, and people view this. All the disciples were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. A lot of the very first converts were Jewish. And then all of a sudden, it spreads to Gentiles, and it takes off like wildfire. And comparatively, there are many more Gentiles than Jews. And, and people ask, wait a minute, where are the Jews? Isn't Jesus the Savior of the Jews? What, what's going on? And, and Romans 9, 6 is the most important verse in this whole section, Romans 9, 10, and 11. It says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises are for sure. And Paul has four big arguments. One, in the in the in most of chapter nine, he says God is sovereign over all about His promise. He's sovereign over people coming. Two, it starts in the end of Romans chapter nine. It goes all the way through chapter ten. Is humans are responsible? Humans have real choices before them. Humans, uh, in this case, the Jewish people, sought after God by works and not by grace. 
they went to go get it on their own and to say, I made it, as opposed to saying, God, you did it. I trust you and you alone. The third argument was the first half of the of chapter 11, where, where Paul is calling all Israelites now, come to faith now, come now. And that goes through verse 10. And this, we're ending now this section right here, which I'm calling the story's not over yet, which is chapter 11, 11 to verse 32. And that's what we're going to cover today is chapter 11. And we're going to finish up, last week we started this, but this week we're going to finish it up, verses 25 to 32. And if you remember last week, Paul uh, was going on about this and talking about uh, where where uh, where all these Jews and, and why have they not come in? And he, he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, so I say, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did they, did they fall so far that they're not going to be able to come back? And he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious, Right? But if their transgression, verse 12, means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, it's really important that you remember this. Chapter 11, verses 11, all the way to 32. You could say all the way to 36, but because that's the end of the chapter. But what we're going to close with here is just this beautiful doxology. Uh, we're going to take our whole time next week and just unpack this. And uh, But... Right here, we have kind of this thesis statement here. He says, did they fall so far that they can't come back? No. So is Jews can still come. In fact, if this means that the Gentiles are now get to come in and it makes Israel envious, he hints at it here and he says, how much greater riches when their full inclusion begin? What, what will it mean when Israel comes back? When Israel comes to Christ? Okay? So... I'm not going to go through uh, all that we covered last week, but he uses this example of a root, the root being the promises given to Abraham, um, and that is forms a tree and branches, and, and the Israelites, different tribes or different people groups or whatever you want to think about it, are, are in their natural branches, but they're broken off because of their unbelief, and then Gentiles get to come in now. Okay, so he does that just, just so you follow the context of where we're going. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it through, and we're going to hone in on one verse this week, the most controversial, which is 26. I think everything hinges on this passage and how you understand verse 26. Let me read it through. Here we go. Romans 11, 25 to 32. I'm going to read this week out of the English Standard Version. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. 
in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that me that he may have mercy on all. Okay? So, great passage. Everything in the passage, however, is, is hinged upon how you understand verse 26. Okay? So, uh, if you have your Bible open, it's always handy in this in this podcast. Or just it's a it's basically a, a we're just hanging out doing Bible study together. He says something's going to happen. That's what the, verse twenty five says. There's a mystery coming, and I don't want you to be unwise about this. That a, a, a partial hardening, not fully. It's they can still come. The Israelites. Until the fullness of the Gentiles, until whatever that phrase means, all has come in. Okay, so something's coming until that time or until that number or however it's going to take place. And then he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, so what I want to do is I'm going to leave that verse for just a minute. We're going to come back to it because we have to look at each single part of it. And in this way, what way you're talking about, Paul? All Israel, well, Paul, you've talked about Israel in a lot of ways. What is Israel? And then we'll be saved. We're going to look at all three parts of that, okay? What we're going to do from here on down is we're going to kind of look at it and say, what are some clues we can see as we're looking at this? Okay, so as it is written, we keep going down. We're going to come back to verse 26. He quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is seemingly to be this indication of what the Old Testament will call the, the, uh, the last days or the day of the Lord or the, in the New Testament, we'd call it the second coming of Christ, right? And so this seems to be towards the end. That's what he's linking at. It seems from quoting that passage so when this whole thing, this will be, it seems to be linked into that, okay? We keep going here. Verse 28, as regards, which is a weird saying, according to or with regard to the gospel, they're actually enemies for your sake, okay? Well, that's interesting. But just notice one thing here. Who's the they? Well, the they is Israel, Right? And the they then, when someone's an enemy of the gospel, is a not a believer. They're opposed to it. In fact, they're so opposed to it, they're enemies of it, right? So just know that kind of helps us to understand a little bit about what this Israel thing is. Then he goes, but in with regard to or according to, or when you look at the issue of election or what God has said about them, They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So who are the forefathers? Well, the forefathers are the patriarchs. The promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right on down, right? And so there's something going on there, right? And then he he grounds that as a way, fancy way of saying he explains that to say for, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then he uses logic and he explains it for him. He says, for just as you are at one time disobedient, now who's the you? Well, the you would be Gentiles. So the you, the, they were outside of the covenant of God. You were disobedient to that, but now you've received mercy. But guess what? That comes because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient 
in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all, all Jew and Gentile, all people, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And again, this follows everything he said in the book of Romans. For all have sinned, all have sinned, Jew, Gentile, everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, only by his grace, only by those who come to Jesus Christ, right? Okay. So that, that looking at all that, that gives us hints as we go back up here. So now let's go back to that passage. And this is, this is it. This, this verse 26, Douglas Moo says this. He says, the first clause of verse 26, which is, and in this way all Israel will be saved, is the storm center in the interpretation of Romans 9 to 11 and of the New Testament teaching about the Jews and their future. Three issues must be settled. The meaning and reference of, in this way, the reference of all Israel, and the time and manner of all Israel's salvation. You see that? We have to unpack this and say, what are you saying and what are you not saying? We're going to let the passage be our guide. We're also going to let everything else we've looked at in the book of Romans also help us here. Okay? So, uh, let's take a look at this. And he says here in, in uh, verse 26, let's start with it, the, the, the first part of this, where he says, and in this way. Now, people have done all kinds of things to try to try to make this other than just what the obvious is, okay? In other words, <clears throat> it could be saying, and then after all the things that have happened, or you could say it's a conclusion, and therefore all Israel will be saved. Or you could say it was uh, it, it has its meaning. It's connecting to the verse as it as is written. Okay, so and there's it gets a little technical here, and you can read a good commentary. I'm, I'm actually getting this out of Douglas Moo's commentary. But the fourth option is just the way it's just the way it naturally reads, and it's really not that fancy of a word. It's the word otos, but just basically means and so and thus and therefore, or not therefore like in in logically following, but but it just means and in this manner, okay. Well, what manner is that? And in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Well, what manner is that? Is he talking about? Well, he just got done talking about it. I just I kind of walked you through it. The, the branches, right? The branches can still come back in. There, there's a natural coming back in. In that manner, something's going to happen. Okay, that's the that's the manner. It's that it's God uh, has imposed a. There's a hardening going on, but they can they can still return back, right? You can see this here from verse 25. A partial hardening has come, but uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so something's going to happen here. All right, now, that's our first deal. So we're just going to take that at face value. It's and in this way, what way? The way that the, the, the branches will be brought back in and in the way that the, the hardening will be released when this amount of Gentiles come in, then something will happen. Okay, now, all Israel, all Israel. First, let's just go to the word Israel because Paul's used that phrase. He says, not all Israel is Israel. Remember that? He, he, he kind of goes there and he talks about this remnant of Israel. And so throughout church history, there's been three ways people have looked at in this particular verse, <clears throat> what that means. Number one, 
They would just say it's the, it's the community of all of God's people, all of the church, Jew and Gentile. So that's everyone. So it's like saying, and in this way, all Christians will be saved, right? Okay, that's one way that they took that. Number two, it couldn't mean the physical descendants, the nation of Israel. And the third way could be more of that remnant idea, the elect within Israel, okay? So let's, let's go. The, the, those who are already believers in, Israel, in, 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 in uh, Jesus, right? So if you just kind of walk through each one of those, however, and, and those three options make things theologically simpler, but uh, the reality is um, grammatically it only makes sense one way. It really does. Uh, you can kind of look through all of these things, and um, if you, if you, again, if you look at what we said, the they there as re- is verse twenty eight as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Well, that doesn't make any sense if it means the church, all the church will be saved, or the remnant, the ones that are already within Israel and already believe. It, 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 it seems to make sense that he's talking here about this nation of Israel, this nation of Israel. So then that leaves us with a big problem here, right? Because then it says, wait a minute now, if you're saying it means the nation of Israel, actual Jewish people by birth, are you saying that all of them will be saved? Is that what, is that what all means here? So, uh, and then this, where, <laughs> this is one of those beautiful things in Scripture where all sometimes means all. Every single last one. And other times, all means a whole lot. Like if I were to say to you, the, uh, um, all the town came out for the parade. Well, that doesn't mean every single last person. It just means, wow, this was the event and a, and a whole bunch of people. It was, a, it was more than it to be expected, right? It was a, it was a large-scale event and people came, right? And so... What, what seems to be going on here is that it's, he seems to be saying something like that. Now, some people have said, don't do that. Just let all be all. And so therefore, now they've had to say, well, wait a minute now, then how is all Israel going to be saved? Because that doesn't even make any sense. With, with, <laughs> why would Paul say, I have unceasing anguish, chapter 9, right? I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my brethren, uh, chapter 9, right? He, he says, uh I could wish that I myself were cut off and cursed from Christ for the sake of my people. If I could give them my salvation, I would, right? Well, that doesn't even make any sense if all Israel here means, oh, by the way, you know what? Everyone who's Jewish, they're just in. And that actually has been a theology that people have held throughout church history that, you know what? There's going to be kind of two ways of salvation. There's going to be the way of the Gentile, and then there's going to be the way of the the, the Jew, and the Jew just basically gets in because they're in because of the Old Testament covenant where God will do this. It's called a bicovenantal theology. And I'm quoting from Douglas Moo in which he says, according to which Gentiles are saved in their new covenant by faith in Christ, while Jews are saved in their Mosaic covenant by their, by their adherence to Torah. Such a view, I'm still quoting from Moo here, allowing it as it does for both the Jew and the Christian to affirm the integrity of each other's religion has proved quite attractive to our post-Holocaust and pluralistic age. But Paul knows nothing of it 
He teaches that salvation can be found in only one place, within the one community made up of those who believe in Jesus Christ. There is only one tree, and one becomes attached to this tree by faith. Jews can be grafted back in only if they do not persist in unbelief. Again, this makes no sense. If you're saying the Jews are going to get saved because if they just follow the Old Testament, right? It, it, everything Paul has said in the book of Romans doesn't make sense if that's what he's saying here. So what do you do with it then? I mean, really, seriously, what are we going to do with this? And I, I think where the answer lies is the fact that it, it is something is going to happen. It is going to happen. It's indicated here that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, now what does that mean? I'm going to give you my double secret answer. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that means exactly. The fullness of the Gentiles, what does that mean? When the, all these Gentiles come in, it makes Israel jealous. And, and this is common with the Old Testament. There's, there's a whole bunch of phrases using this, this, these, this phraseology, the last days, right? And, and it says in Isaiah 2, 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5 says, afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord <clears throat> and to his blessings in the last days. Micah chapter 4 verse 1 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. And if you go to the if you go to the New Testament, that phrase is used again. Second uh, Timothy three, Paul writes, but mark this: there will be terrible times in the last days. Second Peter three talks about something taking place that's going to be unique. It says Second Peter three verse three: above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And it kind of brings up imagery of what Jesus was talking about. It's talking about if those days were not cut short in Matthew 24 and 25. There's something here that's talking about in the future. As all of this becomes clear and clear and we get closer to the return of Christ, it's going to be an amazing time. And my contention and way I understand this and the way it makes sense to me in the rest of the book of Romans and doesn't violate any of some of the other major pillars that Paul has put together is simply this. There will be a massive revival among the Jewish people come the days right before Christ comes. And how that all works, and I don't know. In other words, by being a Jew, are you in just because of that? No. But is there something special about the Jewish people that, that God does have a calling and, and, and is moving in their Ways and, and many, many, many of them will come. And I do believe that is true. Now, you might totally disagree, and I, I'll pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. I just don't know what else to do with this passage so that it makes sense with everything else the Apostle Paul has been saying that Jews need the gospel. Otherwise, they wouldn't need the gospel. They'd be fine just in the Old Testament. Now, a, a principle you could take to this for personal application 
is looking at people you know who are bound up, as the Jewish people were, in religion. Could even be a non-Christian religion, but it's even just religion. And they believe that their religion will save them. And it won't. Religion doesn't save. Actually, religion just points to you and says that you don't have what it takes. But you keep investing in it, saying that it will. And the hope here is that, that God will use even those things in kind of a parallel way to what he's going to do with the Jewish, Jewish people and that they sought after God's righteousness by their own works is exactly what people who are religious in a variety of religions, including some people who claim to be Christians, but in reality are just, it's just a religion, just something you sign up for. It's something you do. It's something where you're trying to earn God. My aim and hope here is to look at this and say, I'm hoping and praying that that all becomes clear and evident that, no, I can't do this. And I see other people and they make me jealous, it says here. And so then I say, no, I want in on that. I want in on that freedom. I want in on that beauty. May that be true even this Christmas season as we sing Christmas carols that people have have sung for years and years, that hard hearts, hearts that are religious but not born again, not trusting Jesus Christ alone, not living by the freedom they have because they can be united to Christ. As we sing these Christmas carols, I pray that hearts are just open. I remember the first year that I came became a follower of Christ and sang Christmas carols. I could not believe the lyrics that I'd sung for years and now had so much deep meaning. Thanks for joining me this time on Romans Untangled. Next week, we end this section, and we are just going to have a party here as we get ready for Christmas, and we really party in this unbelievable doxology that Paul is going to give to close out this section, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.